Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Pete. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm glad you're with us. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, so today we invited two nationally renowned experts to talk about a difficult subject. We're going to ask about complications. Specifically, we've asked each of these surgeons to think about some of their worst complications to describe how they manage them. And I first want to thank both of our guests for their willingness to be part of this. Both are excellent surgeons, and I'm confident they have a very low complication rate. So I don't want anyone to think that I've asked these surgeons because they have a lot of complications. It's the opposite. But I know both will have great insights into how to get yourself out of trouble, even though neither of them gets into trouble very often. So first, we have Dr. Jason Sue of the University of Washington, Seattle. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, next we have Dr. John Barlow of the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, well, so let's start with you, Jason. Tell us about a time things went south. Well, um, in thinking about this podcast, I, I was looking back at my cases, and uh, there's definitely one case in particular that was uh, kind of stood out in my mind. But um, this was kind of my second year in practice. I was pretty much fresh out of uh, fellowship, and uh, a young guy, you know, 36 or so, comes to me with shoulder pain after a fall. He had five or six previous surgeries for anterior instability, uh, including a couple of arthroscopic surgeries, open surgeries, bone block procedure. And he came to me after he fell and, uh, you know, had an MRI, showed an upper subscap tear, some mild to moderate atrophy of the subscap. Looked to me at that time acute on chronic, um, maybe in retrospect, maybe a little bit more chronic than acute. Um, but he had pain in the front. Uh, he young active guy, really had lost use of his arm. I was, because he had so much surgery in the front, I was like, you know, Give this, give this a little bit of time. Um, uh, maybe you'll get better without surgery. But comes back a, a couple weeks later and was said, "Doc, my my wife is pregnant. I have to be able to get my arm back so I can hold my baby." And he had just started his own company and was traveling, couldn't hold his bag, and so it's really hard to empath not not to empathize with these people that come in and they're so profoundly affected by their shoulder problems. But long story short, I. Uh, I agreed to operate on him and uh, I said, I'd give it a shot to repair a subscap. And, you know, if I couldn't do it, I'd use a graft to span the defect. So I did this surgery and I did it open, um, you know, Let's yeah, maybe, I, be, before we get into, so I, I, you, you've set the stage here beautifully. I mean, I think this is our, you've already described a very challenging situation. So before we get to the, where things go South, I want to ask you, John, I mean, you hear the story, prior ladder J, multiple surgeries, upper subscap tear. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, have you repaired this in the past? Like, what, what does this make you think before we get into where things go south? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, it's in this category of things that starts to go down a road of unsolvable problems, which um, I'm, I'm already being triggered by Jason's comments about this young man with a subscap that's difficult. I think Certainly, we see patients, I see it more commonly in the old or prior open bank art repair, who've had a, a um, their subscap taken down with a tenotomy. And then um, oftentimes a decade or so later, even 20 years later, 
they come back and they've got some small injury and and now they've decompensated and I think it's a really challenging clinical problem. I typically do try and repair it um, and I've had some uh, mixed success with that, but I can already see the way that this goes because this uh, there's a lot of things that we have problem we have solutions for now, but this is one that's a little bit tougher. Let me follow up on that for both of you. What would you tell the patient? So you're going to surgery, Jason, but what are you telling him is his chance of good outcome, his chance of being able to hold his new baby um, and do the functional activities that he wants to do as as a father, but also as a young guy who's active and athletic? What are you, what are you telling him? I mean, I was pretty straightforward with the guy. I told him, you know, you've had, you know, five or six operations already. And, you know, this is a crapshoot on whether this is going to work out or not. And the complications are, you know, there's a long list of them. And so I went over that with him with the first visit. And I told him, look, it's it's not worth probably doing surgery here. I mean, there's too many risks. Um, so I was pretty straightforward with him at the first visit. Now, let me follow up on that one more thing. So your second year in practice, but say you're in your first year and you're in board collection, because a lot of our listeners, part of the ACS listener cohort are young surgeons, those who are going to be in board collection or currently in it. Um, what do you, do you do anything differently if you're in board collection in this type of case? Do you talk to a senior partner? Do you document differently? Any advice for our younger listeners who might face such a case early on in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, regardless of board collection or not, it's important to document all this stuff in the chart, especially when you're getting a challenging case. But uh, with board collection, I think uh, obviously you want to be a little bit more careful, but you should do what you think is best for the patient and take good care of them. And uh, I was lucky enough that I had a lot of good senior partners to run things by. So all these, you know, complicated cases I would run by, you know, two or three different people. So, um, you know, I felt confident that when I agreed to do the surgery that I had counseled the patient well enough. And I had talked to many people who said, it's reasonable to try this as long as you, you know, understand what, what you're dealing with here. Okay. So I, we'll, let's get, we'll, let's get the train back on the rails here. So you're, you're headed to the OR planning, hopefully to repair the upper scapularis, maybe augment it. Tell us what happened next. So yeah, I, I did the surgery open. Um, I had already heard of many disasters with subscap tears, and I thought, thought it'd be best to make sure I visualize everything, dissect everything out, um, and rather than mess with a or struggle with an arthroscopic surgery, I thought I'd just be safer doing it open. So I opened it up, and as you might imagine, I ran into a wall of scar tissue. You know, those shoulders where there's no delta pec interval, it's just a wall of pec conjoint subscap all in one. And I spent half an hour just trying to, you know, f figure out where the pec, the conjoint, and then the subscap below it. And um, so I eventually uh, found the subscap. I definitely wanted to feel the axillary nerve. I felt that, dissected it out, felt the artery as well, uh, which was a bit unsettling. And the whole time I'm checking on the bounce of the subscap because I'm like, I don't want to mess with this. Uh, but there was no bounce at all. And, uh, you know, at that point, I was like, it's probably better to bail at this point. At this point, the subscap was, you know, I could pull it back to the lesser. And so I said, I'm just cutting my losses here. I decided to just tack down what I could. I put a couple anchors in there, uh, tacked the upper subscap down. I was pretty confident that it had been as safe as possible. I did everything that I thought I was going to do. I was going to dissect out the axillary um, nerve, make sure I felt the artery. Um, and I thought it was safe. But 
you can probably imagine what happened. Um, so he, he comes in early for his post-op and uh, just in severe pain and um, pain is out of control. And then, uh, you know, I examine him and he has a dense nerve palsy. Nothing's working at all. Uh, hand and fingers are barely moving. Can't bend his elbow. Deltoids out. Uh, no sensation over the deltoid. Everything's just out. And so you can imagine it's it's the worst thing to happen in the middle of a busy clinic. Um, so I, I just sat down with him and I spent time. I was like, "Look, your plexus is out. I don't know. I thought we were safe by repairing the subscap. Uh, maybe we pulled on it too much." And so I taught him about maybe releasing it, uh, uh, or you know, seeing what else, you know, giving it time. Um, but he was like, I, I need my shoulder. I want this to work out. I, I don't want to go back to surgery. I want to just give it time. And so um, I couldn't concentrate the rest of the clinic. I was wondering whether I should have been more adamant about maybe re-exploring or releasing the subscap. Um, anyways, a few months later, we, we just watched it. He's starting to get some distal function back, but Long story short, he um, he never got his axillary nerve back, so he never got any shoulder function back. But he did get his elbow and his distal function back, so he was able, he had a functional arm. It just he couldn't he couldn't raise his shoulder. So um, you know, every time he came in, he brought his baby with him, and I was just like, I you know, I felt really bad. I kind of felt like I ruined this guy's life with his you know newborn baby, and felt really horrible about it. So I think th just um, the first thing to mention is that that these cases I mean I, they're it's I, it's so horrifying to hear you explain it because I know you tried so hard to help this person and you did everything you did to help them and like I think it's sometimes helpful just to remember like you know you didn't you, you didn't dislocate this person's shoulder you didn't do the initial surgeries um, so I think it sounds like you did everything right and it's just just a really really challenging situation. I'm curious to hear from you, John. You know, this I think this is the case. This is a case that really scares me. You know, where the case where the anatomy is distorted, you've lost the coracoid, which is always our lighthouse. Do you have any tips for the listeners when you're in that situation? The coracoid's been moved, but how to reestablish kind of your normal landmarks and figure out where you are once you get beyond the deltoid and pectoralis? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, the first thing I would say is I have not had much experience with revision subscapularis uh, arthroscopically after Latterge. I tend to be a mostly arthroscopic subscap repairer. Um, I don't know. I haven't had to think about if I would do it in the setting of a Latterge, but I almost think that the arthroscopic approach may be a little bit safer there. So I, I may have attended uh, that way. The second point that I would say, sorry, Peter, I'm going to get to your question. Um, but uh, Rachel's question from before was, what if you're in board collection? And I think this is a perfect case where you say, gosh, the risk level is high. Complication profile is high. Um, the likelihood of a really good outcome may be a little bit uh, guarded. I think those are perfect cases to do combined with a senior uh, partner, even if they just sort of peek their head in and supervise you. And I think um, to Jason's point, I think while we know that uh, if you're well-trained, you can do the case, I think there's a recognition to the board examiners that you recognize that this is a difficult case with, with a high complication profile. So those are ones where I would often rec oftentimes recommend having someone else um, uh, on the listing as well, and that can give you some protection. 
to actually answer your question, Peter, I think for me, there I have sort of two levels of approaches. I think if I'm most uh, nervous, I will do these cases. I'm uh, lucky to have partners who are brachial plexus specialists, Dr. Shin and Bishop and Poulos at Mayo. But I think in any practice, you have hand um, and upper extremity and brachial plexus surgeons. So I think it would be reasonable if I'm really concerned and think I need to go after the nerves to do the case with them and they'll find the nerves and then um, that's not a big deal for them. And then I just get to deal with the tendon work. I think the next level down, probably what I would have done on this case is a liberal use of uh, enlarged incision and then liberal use of checkpoint to localize the nerve medially. I really like to use those as a nerve um, as a, and I don't know, Jason, you didn't mention it, but I don't know if you use that, but I use that to sort of start to get me in the ballpark. And I think on this case where you got into just a wall of scar, um, it's hard to know if you should dissect out the nerve if you're going to get, uh, or the brachial plexus. But I think um, in hindsight, obviously I would have, it's easy now to say what to do, but I think using checkpoint can get me in the ballpark and then I can work my way back from there. I think the other question is whether, you know, like I, I personally have not used a lot of intraoperative nerve monitoring, um, but I know there are many surgeons who advocate, like for instance, my senior partner monitors every single ladder J um, because of this concern with the axillary nerve. One of the things that I thought that you mentioned, Jason, that is really interesting is that you found the nerve, you dissected it out. And I, I wonder how much confidence that gave you then at that post-op visit to say, I'm, I'm okay if we just see how it goes. Because I, I would personally argue that it, would, it made no difference. Like if you'd gone back then, nothing would have been different. Like you could have found the nerve. What, what are your thoughts, John? Would you, have, would, would you have gone back or would you not have gone back? I agree. I think uh, it would have been a probably additional insult. So I may have tried an ultrasound to make sure it wasn't cut in half, but it sounds like it was probably traction and scar tissue. And if you've identified the nerve, that's the nice part about being aggressive about going after things at the time of surgery is you can feel confident to follow them afterwards. Even if you don't always alter the natural history, I think I would have watched it at that point as well, just like Jason did. You know, Jason, what, tell us about post-op, you know, with, for, if you have a nerve injury, and I, I think anyone who does shoulder surgery with any frequency is going to have a nerve injury at some point. Tell us, how, you, how did you monitor that? Were there EMGs that you got at certain time points? Did you give the patient any medication? Did you get, did you refer him anywhere else to follow that? How did you manage that on that, on that side? Yeah, you know, I did uh, EMGs of about two and a half months after surgery, just to check on things. I also sent him to our pain management doctors to see what, um, what else could help with uh, pain. I started him on Neurontin. Um, you know, his pain did definitely get better within a couple months after the surgery as his nerve kind of recovered. Um, so I think I got another, it, this is, this case was from a while ago. I think I got another EMG like nine months to a year afterwards. And it showed that pretty much everything was returning except for the axillary nerve. So I think, uh, you know, I definitely discussed this case a lot with my, um, you know, senior partners and, uh, you know, just they guided me along because I was pretty fresh and I, I had never experienced something like this before. So, um, but yeah, EMG at a couple months out and then, uh, um, just consulting with someone who knows more than I did. And I think there's, you know, a couple of options for management. If you if you do have an axillary nerve palsy that's not getting better, there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, did you talk to the patient about 
transfers, muscle transfers, nerve transfers? I, I did mention it. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this was right after my board collection and I was kind of in board collection mode where I was like really just hyper-focused on uh, consenting patients. And I actually, you know, nowadays I, I don't really talk to people about loss of limb or death, but, you know, in board collection mode, I was telling patients, you know, look, this patient in particular, I was like, look, you could lose your arm. And I kind of spooked him. And so he remembered that. And he, you know, when he lost his function, he told me, hey, you know, you told me I could lose my arm and I'm, I'm the one that decided to do the surgery. So, you know, he was, uh, you know, in some ways kind of, um, you know, grateful for that. Not grateful, but he was understanding from that perspective. Um, sorry, I went off course. Your main question, can you repeat? <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to, so first off, I think that's for the listeners, that's such a critical point to make that you had discussed preoperatively that with this patient who was in, you know, a difficult situation to begin with, he was, you know, at real, at really, really risk of this complication to say, you know, this could go really south. And it sounds like the patient was accepting of that because this, this can end differently. This can end in a lawsuit that can be even more painful. Um, the questions were, I mean, so I, there are patients where they have an axillary nerve palsy, we could consider a radial axillary nerve transfer. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, so I, I did talk to yeah. I did yeah, talk to him about those options, uh, but you know, at that point, he had already accepted kind of where he was at, and um, he wasn't interested in any further surgery. And so, even though I had talked to him about these other types of transfers, uh, he was not interested. He actually ended up adapting to um, you know his axillary nerve palsy and ended up still running his business and you know, enjoying his life. And so he, he decided not to pursue anything else. Now tell us, John, about, you know, I know the, the, at the Mayo Clinic, you guys have used the pedicle pectoralis transfer in this setting. Tell us a little bit about your experience with that procedure. Yeah, so I'd say the first thing I think our, our brachial plexus specialist would say, just like Jason did, loading the boat here early is really important. So I think there is some component of all surgeons wanting to have some Wanting to mentally protect ourselves, well, this is a nerve palsy, this will get better, we don't have to worry about it. And in many cases, you can get too far out. And um, and so our, our guys will uh, and girls will want to see people a little bit earlier and potentially consider other options. We're, we're reasonably aggressive about doing, quote unquote, leech of ingbong or medial triceps branch transfers to the axillary nerve. I think that works reasonably well for the right patient. And then I think there's a very small subset of patients who can have this bipolar pedicled pectoralis. We have uh, Dr. Alassane, obviously, when he was at Mayo, did a had a large series, which he wrote up and is pretty good. I think um, my indications are a little more narrow just as I um, venture into that. And for me, most of the time, that's the patient who's got a break, uh, um, rotator cuff and axillary nerve palsy. And I'll do a staged um, bipolar pedicle litis, uh, pectoralis and then a reverse down the road, but very limited experience for for me, but I think there's some encouraging outcomes for the right patient to give them a stable shoulder with, um, you know, mostly sh below shoulder level function, but, but better pain relief. I think the point you make about timing for the, the nerve transfer is really critical just for the listeners. If you do have a palsy, you kind of, you need to do the transfer before the end plates go away. And it takes a certain amount of time for the nerve transfer to heal and for the axon to grow all the way out to the to the muscle so i john correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that if 
if you're going to do the transfer, it's got to be somewhere around six to nine months from onset of the palsy. And if you wait beyond a year, it's really too late. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's just right. And and the part you have to factor into that is if you wait until six months to start the referral process, and then they're going to go to a tertiary quaternary referral center. Um, you know, you've uh, patients have to put their lives together. Oftentimes, difficult financial means and otherwise with brachial plexus injuries. So I think giving yourself, being aggressive about it, and not just saying, hey, quote unquote, this is the block and it should get better or something else is is the most important part. So wise people say, don't hope for wellness, but seek disease. And I think I think that's important in this case. Yeah, so that's, I think that's good advice. If you have an actual nerve palsy, you know, get, you, you want to get an EMG around three months. At that point, I think you want to refer the patient to be evaluated by someone who could do the transfer. And typically I think what they'll do is get another EMG at six months. And if there's improvement, say maybe we could hold off, but if there's no improvement at that point, they may start to counsel the patient to say, okay, we have an established relationship. I'm seeing you again at six months. At this point, we should start talking about the transfer. And then I wanted to just mention that I think that Bossom's pedicle pectoralis transfer is, is, is awesome. It's a huge procedure for the people who haven't done it. It's not, I mean, it's a really, really large exposure um, and I do think it can work with the reverse. If you try and do the whole pectoralis, it can be hard to get much more than 90, 100 degrees of elevation. But if you're just missing the anterior deltoid, we actually have a case we just published where we just, we put the whole pectoralis and flipped it over just to substitute the anterior deltoid. And the patient got about 140 degrees of elevation out of that. So it kind of depends on what you're asking it to do. Rachel, I think you had a question about um, prep planning. Yeah. So for, for both Jason and John, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, so it's easy to look back at the case, although I don't know what could have been done differently. It seems like this was just a bad situation that makes me scared every time I think about doing a revision surgery after a latter day now. So thank you very much, uh, Jason, for that. Uh, but just wondering, is there anything preoperative wise, can you look at, say, for example, on the MRI to look at the location of the neurovascular bundle? This is something for, for knee surgery. If I'm doing revision PCL work, which is not that common, but, um, but not unheard of, I always pay, pay special attention to the posterior neurovascular structures to look for aberrant vessels um, or just the native anatomy, just because it's been mucked around with so much. Is that something you can do, you do do, or is that not really relevant here just due to the significant scar tissue that you're going to find? Just anything that you might be able to help yourself with if this comes up again. Rachel, that's a great point. So um, I've unfortunately had to revise a few ladder J's and I can tell you that two or three times I was just going in to remove screws that were in the joint and causing arthritis. And my goal was just to take out the screws and I didn't want to take the subscap down and the axial artery was just there right on top of the screws. And so uh, if your plan is not to take the subscap down and you're just going straight for the screws, I think it's totally reasonable to do an arteriogram and figure out where that thing is and make sure that you have a vascular surgeon there um, ready to go if you're going to get anywhere close to that thing. Because uh, those can be disasters that, that can result in potential death if you're not ready for it. And John, how about you? Any pre-op, special pre-op planning that you do in these cases or these complex revision cases, not necessarily, you know, a subscap after letter J, but, you know, say revision reverse or something where you are worried about neurovascular compromise, um, normal anatomy is no longer there. Anything you do preoperatively to help yourself? It's a great question. I think uh, the most common would be for clavicles when I'm worried about uh, location of the vein uh, or, or artery subclavian. 
I haven't um, done a lot of it. My partner, Dr. O'Driscoll, has obviously published on localizing the nerves with CT scans around the elbow. And I think um, that can be a really good point because oftentimes we don't think about looking for nerves with CT scan. I'm, I'm certain you could follow the nerves on the MRI. I haven't thought about it, but I think maybe I'll look, I'll look for it a little bit more now in these in these difficult cases. Well, Jason, thank you for sharing your case. I'm sure that wasn't pleasant to go through it again, but um, I think our listeners will have learned a lot from hearing you talk about it. John, can, can we ask you to do the same? Can I think you, Jason should do another one. After hearing his, I felt better having him do his than. <laughs> no, so so I've got a I've got an interesting case, and it's more of a multi part case. One of these patients that that I I, I have ended up just doing uh, four or five operations on, and just can't quite get it right. So, jump in and um, intervene um, wherever you see fit. But this was a woman. She was in her seventies. She came from out of state and she had a basically a two-part surgical neck fracture that was treated with open reduction internal fixation elsewhere. So I worked her up um, or I, she saw me in clinic and she had pull off of the plate distally, which is a little bit of an uncommon mechanism, but occasionally you see it. And it looked like it was one of these fractures that was kind of, think about it like a reverse oblique fracture from a, um, for a hip. So the obliquity was opposite and kind of maybe postage stamped the two or three distal screws and they pulled out of the distal segment. She was in, in her mid-70s. We aspirated it. No evidence of infection. We got a CT scan. She had no arthritis, no antecedent problems, but she'd really uh, eroded some of her humeral head um, in the shaft. So we, uh, I elected to go forward with the reverse total shoulder replacement for her. Notably, so let's, oh yeah, let's just pause. Let's pause here for a second. So it's, I just want to make sure. So your decision to go the reverse is because you feel like you didn't have enough proximal bone for fixation to revise to a nail or to put another plate on. Yeah, she was in her mid-70s. She'd failed one operation that uh, I thought the x-rays were okay from outside. And um, after discussion, we thought that that would be a more definitive option. I thought the humeral head bone stock uh after removal of the screws would be would be too poor to be able to get a good um, revision. I like to do revisions, but in the mid seventies and up, I start to get uh, much um, much more wary about that. So that was kind of my my first decision point. So let's let's just do you mind if I just ask? So Jason, I mean, I I think I we've all seen the surgical neck nonunion with or without a plate. You know, like what are tell us? I've I've. I've definitely struggled with this reverse, the surgical neck non-union. I find this to be a very challenging reverse. Do you have tips for our listeners about that, about that particular case? Yeah, I think for me in the non-union setting, um, I think first of all, it's identification, mobilization of tuberosities. I think the the pendulum has swung back and forth, but it's sw- it swung for good in favor of you need to get the tuberosities repaired and healed for your best possible outcome. So extensive time releasing and mobilizing the tuberosities. Oftentimes you have to osteotomize them if it's a surgical neck fracture. And I'll try and leave them just about as big as I possibly can to keep as much bone on them as possible. Um, but it, it, all of my time is, is spent up, up there on the tuberosity side. Then in the stem, for me, mostly I'm, I'm going with a, a cemented stem and then tuberosity repair to the stem. And um, I think height 
can be a little bit of a challenge here, especially if you've got a lot of bone loss. I will tend to shorten them a little to shingle the tuberosities down over the bone a little bit to try to try and get them to heal. Um, but I think those are those are kind of my my pearls. Any thoughts you guys have? I agree with John. I think really making sure that you isolate that tuberosity and clear off all that scar tissue. I think the challenges in this case is that, uh, you know, the, if the plate pulled out distally, usually where there's better bone, I mean, that's a sign that this patient just doesn't have great bone, has osteoporosis, and, and I'd be worried that this thing might just fall apart. Um, and so I think all your other tips are great. You know, you should cement these for non-union, try to uh, shorten them so that you can get some tuberosity to shaft and see if you can get some healing between them. Uh, but these are definitely challenging and the patients should be warned that, you know, if it doesn't, if the tuberosity doesn't heal down, you may not get great function. You may, some of them end up with a lag if you really lose that tuberosity piece. Tell us a little bit too, I mean, before we get into this case, I want, I, I personally think that one of the big challenges in this case is getting the length right. So, so John, you mentioned you short them a little bit I want to hear from both of you guys, how short is okay? I mean, are these cases where you're getting full length humeral films beforehand to really figure out exactly where you want your stem height to be? Is that, does that not matter in this setting? What are your thoughts? I think I don't go quite that far. I'll, I'll use, I'll try and use the upper board of the pectoralis if that's retained. This patient had surgery, so starts to get a little bit of scar tissue in there and, and gets challenging. For me, most of the time I've got some read of a medial calcar that can get me um, in the ballpark. And that's what I use for 90%. If it's a long established sort of metaphyseal non-union, then in some cases I go to APC or otherwise. But um, for the for the surgical neck non-union, usually I've got some remnant of medial calcar that I can go off of. What, do you, what are your thoughts, Jason? Is this for you also a case where you'd use like a allograft proximal humerus? I think it's, you know, if you're really worried that that tuberosity is going to fall apart, it is reasonable to just make sure you have one on, on backup. Um, I think that in terms of the length issue, I, I think it's more of an intraoperative decision based on what the soft tissue gives you and what the stability of the implant once you place the components. I typically don't get full length films on the other side and compare them just because, you know, in these cases, there's so much scar tissue. And if you went out to length, I think with uh, to their normal length, it'd be pretty tough to reduce. And also you probably wouldn't get much tuberosity to um, shaft contact either. Okay. John, tell us what happened. Great. So I was pretty proud of myself. I saved, I saved this woman. She, um, as always is the case is absolutely delightful. One of my favorite patients to see in clinic and she did well. She, uh, the tuberosity looked like it healed to the stem. I couldn't clearly see the tuberosity heal to the shaft. And then at about a year or between the year and 18 month mark, I started to see loosening of the cement bone interface around the stem. And I should say, I did use a standard length um, humeral stem. So she clearly developed progressive radiolucent lines at the uh, cement um, bone junction. So I, I started to get concerned. And at that point, um, she kind of wanted to watch it. She was still clinically doing well with reasonable function. So we watched it for a little while and then she just progressively loosened and basically developed a fracture at the tip of that stem from humeral component loosening. 
Um, obviously, this is one of the first learning points. So I, I worked her up. Humoral component loosening typically would be a, a pretty clear giveaway for infection. We aspirated her shoulder. That was negative for any signs of infection. And this was um, speaking to the Dr. Frankel just published or, or um, spoke about this at ASES. And he had a subset of aseptic loosening of fracture stems. And I think when the fracture extends below the metaphysis, so if you lose that sort of dish-shaped metaphysis proximally, you lose rotational control on the stem. And I think these stems can loosen um, even in the absence of infection. So that was her first complication of several was that she loosened. And I think that was a practice change for me. Now, if they extend below that, I'll use a uh, I'll actually either go to a long cemented stem or um, a fluted tapered stem that I can get uh, that I can bypass that area and get ingrowth. Have any of you guys seen that complication in your practice or uh, coming into your practice? I have. I mean, I, and Pascal's talked about this for some time, actually, that, that, you know, once you lose kind of the complex geometry, of the proximal humerus and you're into the diaphysis, you have you're potting a cylinder into a cylinder and that provides very little rotational control and you know, that's part of the reason why there's been such an advocation for the proximal allograft is it gives you a little bit more of that kind of three-dimensional fit. I, I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, using more of a DASO fitting stem. What are your thoughts on interlocks? Have you used, you know, there are now two stems on the market that have interlocks distally for this kind of thing. Have you used those at all? Do you think there's a place for those? I haven't, and I don't know. I'm, I don't know when to use them. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. What do you think, Jason? I have no experience with them. I'm not sure. Uh, this is certainly a problem with any kind of fracture non-union where you don't get the you know proximal healing of the tuberosities because again you have a cylinder within a cylinder. So, you know, I've tried many different things where you know I'll take a burr and try to make it as rough uh, as kind of an undulation around the uh, inside of the canal to try to get the cement to not necessarily be a cylinder. I can't. I don't have a long, uh, enough long-term follow-up to know, but it's certainly a problem where you think you have a great cement mantle and this thing just, you know, a year or two, it just starts to, you know, you see this radiolucent line. I don't know that I have a great solution for it. I have not yet gone to, you know, long sense as John has talked about, but I'd be interested to hear, uh, you know, kind of longer-term follow-up with that because I, I do think this is a big problem. I guess we should ask now, you know, we just... Stephanie Mew just presented cemented versus cementless proximal humerus fractures, acute fractures at the ASCS and showed maybe a slight advantage for cementless. For both of you right now, acute proximal humerus fracture, you're doing a reverse, are you using a cemented or a cementless construct? What do you think, John? I most commonly use a cemented construct. It's mostly because of the stem design that I use, which is designed to be put in in a cemented manner. And the geometry is not great for, for press fitting and the, and the trials aren't great. But I would say um, probably 20% I press fit because they've got extension below the calcar. And then I'll, I'll use a modular fluted tapered stem and get, get some diaphyseal engagement. What about you, Jason? So I kind of do a combo. I, I, if I have any doubt, I will cement. But I usually actually take the head and I impassion graft the stem. That kind of restores some bone stock. And it's, great. it's a great technique because you can get height and rotation control of your stem while you're trialing without a tuberosity and you can get your height exactly where you want it to be. 
And then if I don't feel comfortable with the impassioned grafting being enough to get good fixation of the stem rotationally, then I'll just pull out some of the proximal graft and then cement proximal, like uh, use actually a cement gun. And the impaction grafting actually acts as a cement restrictor. So it's kind of like a um, cement, you know, proximally and then distally. Uh, it's actually an impaction grafted bone that can heal in. I love the idea of your, uh, that you're saying of like undulating. It's like it's like you're fluting the bone when everyone else is fluting the stem. It's great. I can't take credit um, for that. Dr. Matson uh, taught me that one. Ah, uh, uh, okay, okay. I mean, the concern obviously is you're losing a little bit more bone as you're doing that. Um, so tell us, tell us, John, what happened next? Yeah. So at that point she became symptomatic. She sort of broke and now she's obviously not only got uh, a loose stem, but she's got bone deficiency proximally. So big discussion then with her about options. She's now mid to late seventies, but she's active and, and healthy. And we talked basically about APC versus, um, a modular fluted tapered stem with an attempt to kind of circlage the bone shell around or even going to a tumor stem. And I think my discussion with her sort of led to the point of, gosh, we've had difficulty getting two things healed between the fracture and then the tuberosities. Let's go for the option that requires a little bit less healing and we'll do just a, a modular fluted tapered stem rather than a... Um, rather than an APC. So I, 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 I put in a modular fluted tapered stem. I think you guys are probably knowledgeable about the on the market one and it's in, in two millimeter increments. And I, I press fit it in and I felt really good. I attached some of the bone around it, the tuberosities around proximally. And then the next complication was that she subsided that stem. Um, probably that was about between the three and six week mark. She felt something uh, go a little bit and then i noticed obvious subsidence of the stem so now i'm um i've got failed operation number two and i thought she detensioned it too much that i probably needed to do something with it at that point so that's a bad problem so yeah i, um, I was about yeah, to say we're, i'm kind of silent because i don't i'd like thinking to myself what i would even do next and we're I know, right? Well, and that's where I was, and I was all excited about. I was all excited about these modular fluted tapered stems, and um, this version that that I use is it was is relatively new, and I I felt like I got really good press fit into the the distal humerus, and there was enough of a cone. So now she's got a subsided modular fluted tapered stem, and now I have the discussion again uh, about APC versus tumor prosthesis. And at that point, um, now we've had three things not heal. So I tried the not healing route. And so we went to a uh, basically a tumor prosthesis that we could cement in distally and sort of wraps around the proximal bone to give some ingrowth um, on the outside. So I used a, a long stem tumor prosthesis. I upsized. Now I was starting to wonder what was the next uh, shoe to drop. And Figured I was going to at some point have instability as an issue. So I used um, in, uh, some increased offset on the component and increased the uh, glenosphere size. And uh, that component I got uh, to stay stable in, in her shoulder. So I upsized her and went to the sort of a tumor prosthesis and went to the biggest glenosphere 
that I could get on the um, on the socket side. So um, so then I was really happy, and then she came back at three months, and she dislocated as I sort of expected that she may. And now she's missing all the proximal bone um, up top. So now she's got a dislocated reverse, and she hadn't previously been in the dislocator camp. And I think all of us have seen the the dislocators, and and they're it's just a difficult problem. And they um, but she wasn't a dislocator, and then she became one. So I think this was another uh, learning point where I said, gosh, I just have not been able to get this operation right. And that's when uh, maybe I should have three operations ago, but I brought in my partner. So I, I called Joaquin. It's nice to have partners like him, but I called Dr. Sanchez Sotelo and I said, I need to give this lady one more operation that makes her stay stable. And um, I'd really like your help um, with this one. So we said we're going to do one more big operation, take out all the scar tissue, dig everything out around the um, around the glenosphere, take out all the extra bone, because I tried to preserve some of the bone intermittently. So we tried to take all that out to avoid any impingement proximally, and we put we did another reverse. And um, and that operation was technically good, and and I can tell you the level of comfort of just having another surgeon with me was dramatically better because I think we can, that's another learning point from this case. I think we can get a little bit myopic um, or have blind spots about what, what we've done wrong in certain cases. And we could do that with x-ray review, but I think sometimes having somebody personally there with you as you do it can be incredibly helpful. So checking our ego and just saying, let's bring somebody else in here and um and and get a little bit of help so that was that was a nice case to do together yeah i mean i think once once you i i think once you get to that tumor prosthesis it can be hard to get the stability right i i when i brought up the length earlier that's one of the things that i i've struggled with in these in these surgical neck non-unions is the first one i did that dislocated and the next one i did the chromium broke and i was like i clearly don't understand <laughs> and now, I, now it's like i don't i can't get it right i say david if i do it then i don't did you think, I think this is another case to consider the cerclage, and have you done that before? Uh, the cerclage to the glenosphere? Right, yeah. Yeah, we, I have, uh, I have not done that before, but I think um, if I had her case again, I would probably try something like that. And I've got one coming up who I'm planning to do uh, a cerclage to the glenosphere, because these problems just become uh, unmanageable so quickly. And it seems like even when the x-rays are perfect, they could just find a way to dislocate. Yeah, it's well, it's really hard when you've lost all that proximal soft tissue. Any um, anything else you would add, Jason? What 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 would you have done differently? What did we miss here? So these are really tough because I think once you start losing the proximal bone, everyone thinks you know you're losing cuff, you're losing stability. But this, you're not just losing the cuff. I think once you start losing more distal than the the calcar and the metaphysis, you start losing the pec and the lat and anything that's pulling the humerus immediately, and so. Once you start getting into humeral APCs and tumor processes, it's really hard to get stability because you just don't have anything there that is holding it in. I have tried the glenohumeral cerclage. I think uh, it's a reasonable thing. To, I've, I've had some success and some failures with that. Actually, just uh, last week, I tried a, a new procedure. I, I don't know if this will work or not, but... Um, you know, I was just thinking about the loss of all that soft tissue and the dynamic stability that you get. So, you know, I tried a, a lower trap transfer with an Achilles and 
uh, you know, put a bone block into the lateral um, uh, part of the stem, and uh, it was a humeral APC, and then uh, actually brought a limb of the graft over to the coracoid and kind of tacked that down. So I'm trying new things because this is a hard problem. <laughs> I like it so that so that the lower trap wraps all the way around the humerus. Well, it's a lower trap to the Achilles bone block, which is then uh, put into the proximal humeral APC, and I take a limb of the Achilles and then split it and bring it around forward and wrap around the coracoid. Oh, nice. You heard it here, folks. It's like a, cor a combined coracohumeral ligament transfer. Around the world. Yeah. That's awesome. We'll see That's if it works. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay. so glad these cases are happening to you guys, but I have a general <laughs> general question for both of you as we get toward the end of this podcast. You know, there's a saying in surgery, if you don't have complications, you're either number one, not operating enough, or number two, not honest enough. So as Pete mentioned at the very beginning, I do want to personally thank both of you for being willing to talk about difficult cases and cases that probably have kept you up and continue to keep you up at night. What advice do you have for our younger listeners? Because oftentimes it, it's hard to discuss complications and hopefully all of us have mentors in which we can call and ask for advice or commiserate and say, I, I just can't believe this happened or I, I messed up and I wish I didn't do this or what can I do better? And, and it really eats at us. And our patients often don't know the angst that we feel when we have these complications and how much um, we wish we didn't. What, what advice do you have um, other than our listeners maybe listening to podcasts like these and knowing that expert surgeons also have, you know, complications? Um, what advice do you have? John, let's start with you. I just think the major advice that I would have, and, I, and a couple of people warned me about this before I went into practice, but it's just a humbling sport to do orthopedic surgery. We're trying to do some incredible things and, um, and in you will you will inevitably have complications and i would just um recognize and acknowledge the incredible loneliness that you feel when that happens and you have friends and family who are non-surgeons and even even physicians that are non-surgeons who say oh you know john you know that that's a known complication of this and this is a tough problem and and that that can happen and it it is just very little consolation in the moment especially if you care deeply about your patients, like I think all of our members do. And I think a recognition about a recognition and just a calling out of that, that you will have that feeling. And at some point, probably in your career, you will say, gosh, this isn't worth it um, to go through this. And this is too big for me. And I think having a group of peers that you can talk to, um, my residency colleagues are always uh, people that I call and fellowship uh, partners who are living the same life with me and I can always just bear my soul with them and, and have a conversation with them. And then I think the most important part about that is how you respond to that adversity. I think I love this woman. She uh, subsequently ended up, uh, she was stable for about four months. She slipped on a, on a freak ice storm and dislocated her shoulder again. I went in and the poly had dissociated and I converted her to a Hemi and she's got a Hemi now and we meet every six months or a year because she doesn't like it. And I'm disappointed that I couldn't get her better. But I think that she recognizes that I did the best that I thought that I could. And I, I continue to think about her and, and try and learn from her so that the next patient like her, I can do better 
than than what I did before. So I think for me, it's a recognition that it that it happens and you got to talk to your peers about it because it's a lonely feeling. Number two, trying to learn uh, something from the case. And then the final thing that I would say is there's there's two wrong pathways that you can do. Number one, you can avoid risk entirely. And I think you're going to miss out on patients that you can you can help if you just totally try and avoid it. And I think the other wrong approach is to become nihilistic and say, well, sometimes these things don't go well and it is what it is or it's her fault or it's, um, you know, this is a high complication rate surgery. And I think it's our job to take control of every factor that we can in a meaningful way that allows us to keep taking care of patients and moving forward. So those are my thoughts. And I obviously we, we think about our losses a hundred times more than our wins, but I think we learn a lot more from our losses than our wins too. I think the, one of the important things you mentioned there is part of our job is to care. Like if, if you, you have to care, you have to care about the patient who has a problem that's going to be really difficult that you know, like th this could go south and I could regret doing this. And you also have to care when things go south, even when you did nothing wrong. And to say the patient, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And I, I, you know, I feel personally culpable, even if you're really not culpable, you know. All words of wisdom. Jason, any thoughts on on your end? Anything that you would advise our, our, our young members, our young listeners when it comes to having and dealing with complications? Yeah, I 100% agree with what John has said. I think it's important to realize that complications happen to everyone. And I, when you're young and you're doing your board collection and you actually have to log your complications, you realize that you have a lot to learn. And so as long as you're learning from your mistakes, you study your patients and see what you can do better um that's important john brought up the important thing about you know this is really when you have bad complications it's tough on your confidence and your mental health uh to me the best thing that you can do is actually spend as much time as you can with your patients these patients that have bad complications book them at the end of the day just sit down with them spend time um you know i have a commute that's about 45 minutes and i just have a a list of people that i just call to you know, they just want to hear from you. And so what will make you feel the best and your patients the best when you have complications is, you know, serve your patients, spend time with them. That's, that's what they want. Just phenomenal words of wisdom from both of you that I think our listeners will really benefit from. I want to thank both of you for doing this. This is, this, I mean, this is not an easy thing I know for either of you to do. I certainly, I'm, I'm hopeful you won't take this to mean that you'll can invite me to do the same for anything you guys are doing because I don't want to do it. Me, me and John, job. me and John saw each other at ASCS. We're like, oh, we have that podcast, and we both went into PS PTSD mode, and <laughs> we we're crying. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys for doing this. It was incredibly valuable. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having us, guys. Yeah, thank you both so much again. I'll echo what Peter just said, but it can't be said enough. It it takes really strong, confident people to be able to come up and talk about these things, and to be willing to educate others on on what they've gone through and how to get better. And it's really, really difficult. Um, so thank you both very much. And that is all the time we have for today's podcast. Again, we want to thank our guests for coming on and sharing their stories and words of wisdom. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.